Thank you for joining us today for this podcast on circular economy, where we will be focusing on how to support circularity in batteries. My name is Claire Gustar, and I run ESG and sustainable finance for Deutsche Bank's fixed income business. Joining me today, we have Jan Zulko, CEO of Everphone. Since 2016, Jan has been building the startup and phone as a service pioneer Everphone. Prior to that, Jan founded his first company, Pecumax, a B2B SaaS company which enabled financial advisors and brokers to provide data-supported customer advice, which was later purchased by Check24. From there, he went on to build local marketplaces at incubator M-Cube, which was later renamed Locadi under Check24. We have Jagabanta Ningtujam, a principal at Rocky Mountain Institute, India. Jagabanta works on electricity, hydrogen, and battery-related work streams. He comes from a background of energy consultancy and development. Prior to RMI India, he worked with the World Bank Group and the International Finance Corporation in energy and climate sectors in areas ranging from carbon pricing and mining to power systems planning and urban transportation. He recently co-authored an RMI report entitled Towards a Sustainable Battery Manufacturing Industry, the Case for Effective Reuse and Recycling. And finally, we have joining me Andrea Stupnik, part of our investment banking client coverage and origination team in Frankfurt, who increasingly focuses on building relationships with young companies and startups to provide them with capital solutions. Thank you all. Let me start with you, Jan. Can you please introduce Everphone and explain how the service helps your customers to become more sustainable? Yes, thank you very much for the introduction. So Everphone, we found it as a B2B phone as a service company, as we call it. So what do we do? We provide mobile phones and mobile devices to companies. The reason why this or why we are able to do this in a sustainable way is because we own the devices. So we own the devices and we give them to the companies to use them. And what does that mean if we own the devices? It means that we take care of them in the end. So we buy high-value devices like the latest, uh, the latest flagship devices, and we try to use them as long as possible. So a phone can be with one client for two years. It comes back. We refurbish it and give it to another client for another two years, which a company itself would never do, but it's built into Everphone's business model because we're trying to extend the lifetime as long as possible. And that obviously makes economic as well as ecologic sense because we're just refurbishing and reusing and making sure that the lifespan of these electronic devices is as long as possible. And because we own them at the end, they come back to our company and we recycle 100% of the devices um, we can't use anymore. So it's a completely closed loop. Great, thanks. Andres, uh, over to you. Can you tell us how did the Everphone relationship develop and what was DB's role in the transaction? Yeah, sure. Thanks. Thanks, Claire. So <clears throat> the one thing that became clear to me increasingly working with young companies and, and startups and people like Jan, the kind of serial entrepreneurs, it's, it's a people's business. So, so how did this come along? It, it actually came along by a business angel that, uh, that is a friend of mine who is invested uh, in Everphone um, and who called me up some point and said, hey, Andreas, you know, I think 
what is needed here is a kind of structured solution from a capital perspective. I think you're someone who, who can help there. You know, in theory, we as Deutsche Bank obviously have also created like small teams in you know, relevant hubs, you know, such as Frankfurt, Munich, etc., where kind of all these young companies and startups mingle. Uh, but in reality, it's it's a lot about business, uh, personal relationships and, and trust and, and people that those owners and founders would want to work with and less so about the business cards, which obviously matter as well. And this is how this came along as well. When I, when I got this call from, the, from, from Jan's business angel, uh, it was very funny because uh, she basically said, you know, explained the business model in a few words. And I was like counting in my head how many used old mobile phones we have in our household, uh, you know, uh, in the drawers. Uh, and I was talking to my wife and uh, we came up with four or five. And I was like, well, hold on a second. This is definitely a business model and should be right at the heart of the circular economy. Um, and 12 months fast forward, we put a 120 million facility uh, in place. What was our role as Deutsche Bank? Well, we were co-arranger and lender in this facility. And I think it's important to understand that when we do this with young companies, it's really a tailor-made process. There's no, you know, there's no standard product that we can pull out of the drawer, but it's really reflective of the business model that is being presented to us by the owners. And in that case, Jan, also CFO at the time, Ben. Um, what's important, I think, to highlight um, during the kind of joint process is, is three things that we focused on. Structure, because obviously um, it, it, the facility needs to be able to brief, right? It needs to reflect the business model on the one hand, and on the other hand, also allow for flexibility uh, for young to actually grow the business across regions, device types, client types, contract types. Secondly, scalability. Right? I think this is one of the edges that we have with banks versus some of our uh, friendly competitors on the fund side. We want to put something in place that later on can be used by the company to scale it. What does that mean? We have basically put certain features in the facility in place that Jan later on will be able to use if he chooses to go to the capital market funding way, which would be much cheaper. Certain features that we see in the ABS market, such as the reporting was set up in a way that it can be used later on for capital markets investors. We've set up a structure that includes a servicing company, which again is another component that, that we see typically in the ABS market. And thirdly is, is flexibility, right? We're, we're, we're realistic enough, and, and, and Jan, my colleague Robin, who owns the book, and I sat down in Berlin two weeks ago, uh, and the, the discussion was very much about, look, the business is evolving, it's changing, and we need to, on an ongoing basis, fine-tune the structure, and that means, in effect, in essence, dealing with waivers and other requests that come from the company our way, and we need to show this flexibility, and that's a culture that that we need to embrace uh, to continue to have, have a, 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 a happy client. Great. Thanks, Andres. C can you talk a little bit about um, how the transaction focused on ESG and sustainability and maybe give us more specifically a sense of the alignment um, in reviewing the deal with the EU taxonomy? Yeah, sure, Claire. I, I, that was obviously at the heart of the process, um, maybe not so much visible to Jan and the team, but clearly internally, uh, you know, whole separate focused work stream was set up to, uh, to deal with that. Um, I think it's important to note uh, that from a Deutsche Bank's perspective, uh, obviously, you know, ESG is at the heart these days of everything that we do, particularly on the lending side. 
And as such, one of the important approvals, approvals that we have to obtain when we're working on new financings is an approval uh, from what we call our Group Sustainability Council. And very early on in the transactions, uh, I've obviously involved you, Claire, given uh, your global role from ESG perspective and, and colleagues in the Group Sustainability Council to ensure that we're looking at this financing in the right way to at the end of the day be in a position to call it what it is, which is a green financing, which you know is is is, not, is very important also from a labeling perspective as far as kind of Jan's ambitions are concerned, to continue to present himself and Everfone from various angles as a as a as a company that is right at the heart of the circular economy. What does it actually mean and what did we do? So there's there's three things in the analysis that we that we focused on. The first thing that obviously we need to make sure is that, you know, the percentage of revenues that's being generated from what we think is a circular economy is more than 90%. Now that's a no-brainer in the case of Everfund because it's actually, it's actually 100%. The second part of the analysis uh, was a little bit more, um, let's say, uh, nuanced because we actually looked at the lifespan of the Everfund mobile phone portfolio. And the reason we were, were able to do this in a way, if you want, independently forming our own view is because actually this is the data that we also needed to obtain from the client when we actually put the financing structure together. So we very much in detail analyzed Jan's portfolio. We looked at it from a, from a, from a historical perspective and we saw how these contracts that he has with his uh, mid and large core clients uh, developed in terms of um, um, duration of the contract, termination, et cetera, et cetera. And that basically allowed us to conclude that, you know, the, 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 the average uh, lifetime of, uh, of Jan's contracts with his client is uh, somewhere between 24 and 36 months. And again, this is an evolving uh, point, and that's why I'm mentioning a range, right? Because clearly the needs and demands on the client side change over time. And what we currently are seeing and what we've discussed with Jan two weeks ago in Berlin is that it's kind of migrating more towards the longer end of that range because people, I guess, you know, like the service so much that, that, that they see the value in actually uh, obtaining longer-term contracts rather than shorter-term contracts. So we came up uh, with, with this analysis um, that basically on top added then a further component, which is the average use after reintroduction to the market by other funds of those funds that are being taken back after the after the end of the contract. And, and that analysis uh, ended up with a number that's kind of roughly 60 months. We then analyzed how we can compare this and what the benchmark for our comparison should be to basically on a relative basis be able to conclude, look, what Jan and the guys are doing is, is actually is, is great. It kind of extends the lifetime of the mobile phone substantially. And there's a very useful uh, report and actually work being done by the European Economic and Social Committee, which analyzes exactly that. It's, it basically refers to the EU reference lifetime for cell phones. And that number is 22 to 30 months. So um, as it's actually evidenced and reported on very extensively in a recent report that's published by this institution. And so if you compare those two um, in, in, in the analysis, you basically come up with a factor of two. And that could be more or, or less than two, but it's, it's there about. And I think, you know, over time, and Jan is probably better than able tonight to comment on this, this will increase. So our conclusion was, look, you know, we've got enough evidence to basically say on the back of Pepperphone's business model, 
the average lifetime of a cell phone is two times higher than what it would normally be when it ends up in my and my wife's drawer here uh, in, in, in our house. And the product was, was a green financing that ultimately was approved under what we call the Pillar 2 classification based on circular economy, Deutsche Bank reuse of products. That's great. Thanks, Andreas. I think people forget all the, the technical side um, to verification of a, of a transaction under our sustainable finance framework and, and EU taxonomy. So thanks for sharing that with us. Um, Jana, I want to go back to you for a second. You often uh, mention uh, the term use not own in your keynotes. What is meant by that? And what's your personal uh, connection uh, with this term? Yeah, uh, it basically um, comes back to our generation uh, being used about. Um, so um, we basically are used to using things and not taking care uh, of things. So I really don't want to have the responsibility of ownership. Um, I really want uh, the fun of using uh, things and specifically in smartphones. I think that basically my remote control for life, I need them for everything. So it's, it's something I really need and I need that it works. And the big difference, I think, between sort of buying a phone and owning it uh, um, um, uh, as to getting it as a service is that a company always has an incentive to to deliver perfect service, but also to make sure that the, the, the machines we own, basically the smartphones in this case, we can use as long as possible. And I think individual uh, users and uh, um, we just heard uh, that uh, there are a lot of devices in drawers we are just used to convenience. I think the world is built around convenience. That, that was the mindset. And convenience has created a throwaway economy because often it's so easy for an individual to just buy something new because goods have become so cheap. And therefore, to end, to end the throwaway economy, I think it's the as-a-service, the hardware-as-a-service business is in a perfect place because hardware-as-a-service companies buy high-value goods that last a long time time instead of low value goods that you throw away and replace with new goods, which in the end need just as many resources as producing the high value goods. It's just that the technology is more advanced in the high value goods and you can use them longer. But the individual, I think, has very little incentive, unfortunately, to really reuse, recycle, reduce uh, um, in this case. But companies, because it's built into their business model, I mean, that's how we earn money have a very high incentive to deliver a great service and use the resource as long as possible. So I think the, the circular economy aspect of a hardware as a service business can be part of the solution of the throwaway economy, which I think is one of our big problems uh, in the world. So, and that's what I mean with using it. It's better for you as a user to, to not own it. And actually, it, I think, makes more sense for the planet if companies take uh, care of uh, these goods because they will just extend the lifespan. Thanks, Jan. I mean, I think that's a great way of describing uh, a, a new business model of service um, in support of sustainability for the products um, that we use. Thanks for that. Um, turn, turning over now, um, Jan, to you. Um, so you mentioned when we spoke about circular economy, that it's not just about recycling, but about reuse. Can you just elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, um, thank you. Thank you, Claire. Just a small correction, uh, Jag, J-A-G. So you can probably edit that. <laughs> if you want to repeat the question, that's fine. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I can, I can kick things off. Um, so, of course, uh, unlike uh, Jan and um, uh, I, we, I, I come from the perspective of um, battery manufacturing, 
from the perspective of electric vehicles. Now, the concepts of circular economy are not too different. Uh, the actors are different. The, the scale at which it operates are potentially different, but it's uh, from, from a very macro lens, it's not too different from electronic waste re uh, recycling as well as uh, potential reuse of assets. Now, when it comes to batteries, um, particularly to do with electric uh, vehicle batteries as well as, of course, uh, electronic batteries, uh, one thing, the, the fact that you are potentially going to have a tremendous uptake of assets, uh, both from EVs, from commercial electronics as, as, as people become richer, as well as potentially for uh, use cases in grid services, you are expecting in the uh, world uh, a humongous, uh, you know, uptake in the scale of uh, batteries in the in a forthcoming decade and, uh, and more, and especially as the world gets geared towards the net zero framework and meeting it. To give you a sense of uh, the scale, just in India, uh, we are. The RMI's assessment uh, expects battery demand uh, within the next 10 years or so to go anywhere between 50 to 100x. Where does the material come from? Uh, how do you encourage circular economy of all of the material? There are multiple perspectives to, to think around it. Now, I definitely would love to uh, address the other two R's, uh, uh, the recycling as well as reduce aspects of it in another uh, uh, later, but specifically reuse when it comes to uh, batteries. Uh, when let's say your electric vehicle uh, battery retires, uh, it's not retiring at 100% uh, uh, useless state. So basically uh, within the lifespan of a, a typical electric vehicles, which is roughly around seven to eight years, give or take, uh, the battery is meant to retire when your ability to uh, charge it drops to around 60, 70%, 70% to be uh, precise. Anything below that, of course, you're compromising the range that the EV can deliver. You observe this in your electronics, how, how your iPhone two years later doesn't charge half as well as it used to charge when you just own them. Uh, it less, it's less critical when it's a phone. It's a lot more critical when it comes to electric vehicles. So the retirement aspects of it gets a lot more uh, clear and present with EVs. Now, what do you do with that battery? Uh, it's very uh, easy to think about it when the problems, the scale of the problem was small. But if you're looking at 100x, 50x, 100x growth and demand, the scale of the problem becomes humongous. And uh, just because uh, the fact that EV adoption is just at the beginning stage, most in most places around the world, you're not going to see the impact of it till uh, let's say another ten years out. But when in, the, in those ten years, your first few batches of EVs are going to retire, especially the batteries, not necessarily the whole vehicle. So there is this whole potential uh, room for reuse that's emerging, and and there are multiple cases that you could think about. You could think about it uh, packaging it for commercial electronics, as, as, as folks in this call uh, podcast uh, are more geared towards. But the more pertinent case would be aspects uh, where, where, where batteries can be used in higher volumes are aspects like uh, battery as energy storage for grid integration of renewable. Because unlike EVs where the energy density is very much more important, in the case of grid storage, it's not so much the energy density, but the rather the total size of the tank. So there's very lim uh, much... Uh, lesser limitation on the on the volume 
of batteries that is required for uh, you know. So you have if you have land, if you have enough uh, you know uh, uh, space available, uh, it really doesn't matter uh, how uh, dense uh, the battery is when it comes to its ener uh, energy density. You are able to stack more batteries. So there is a whole case of reuse that emerges. Uh, from especially from grid scale storage, but also potentially for backup applications, etc. And that's a whole market which allows you to extend the useful life of assets which are going to retire in in very large volume in the next decade or so, uh, and which is also synergistic with the whole decarbonization ambition of most countries as we move towards um, uh, you know uh, accelerating the whole uh, you know clean energy transition story. So I'll pause there. Um, happy to, you know, elaborate more if needed. Yeah, I think I think it'd be great to hear a bit more from you on that. So I think if you could just speak to a little bit more about how do we enable recycling ecosystems and more sustainable manufacturing processes. What are the steps and, and what are the things we need to think about? I mean, uh, it's again if you look at the re reduce reuse uh, recycling uh, framework uh, the first point of attack of course is to make sure that you're uh, you 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 are able you you don't demand resources more than more than necessary so if you can if you can uh, uh, encourage energy efficiency and product efficiency user efficiency of you know, at all aspects uh, it already reduces the pressure on the manufacturing processes you can also potentially make your manufacturing more uh, uh, energy efficient, robust, and also using green energy. That's uh, one layer of it. But when it comes to the actual, how do you manage the end of life? Uh, the challenges, uh, there are challenges. Uh, so especially when it comes to countries like India, because of the whole informal nature of the end use sector, particularly electric vehicle electrification, uh, the whole problem of how do you collect uh, how do you enforce that collection mechanism? Uh, who, who is liable for battery collection uh, and recycling? Uh, those things emerges. So there is this framework called EPR framework, or Extended Producer Responsibility Framework, which is a very common framework uh, that is adopted in the circular economy uh, world, where the onus of uh, collection and recycling is passed on to the producer and importer in case of the product is imported over the end user. And that's uh, a way to shift the internalize the cost, uh, 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 which would otherwise have been a socialized cost of uh, recycling and, 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 and extendedly reuse. So adopting an, uh, an empowering an EPR framework is, is a one step. But then you also need to look at like, uh, uh, you know, especially when it comes to batteries, like how do you safely transport it? These are potentially high hazardous material, especially when you reach the end of life. Uh, and it's a big concern when a lot of the recycling uh, ecosystem potentially could be informal. Uh, very little ENS, uh, environmental and social safety measures that are uh, you know, applied at that stage. So thinking through that is gonna be important. Uh, even when we reviewed India's uh, draft battery waste management rule, there was no mention of reuse. And that's something that needs to be stressed. Uh, and, I, and, and in most cases, it is early. It is, I would say, at least half a decade to a decade out when reuse cases needs to be thought of. But it is high time when, when you, you need to uh, think and put in the standards around it. Standards and, and performance, uh, uh, performance standards and warranties around the reuse Aspects of batteries needs to be thought of because uh, you need to guarantee a certain minimum performance for it to for you to be able to reuse those products. Uh, 
there is need, uh, uh, definitely a lot, lot of need on R&D. And this is with respect to the material recovery aspects of it. Uh, how much of that was, and this is more of the scientific and engineering processes uh, that I, we should not get too much into at this podcast, but it definitely making it more and more efficient so that you're able to extract as, uh, uh, as much material and as much mineral as possible from those recycling processes need to be thought of. Mm. Then, of course, uh, because of the humongous nature of the p- uh, problem emerging, you need to th- think about an international uh, mechanism of technology transfer or, 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 or shared uh, knowledge that needs to emerge out of this. Uh, uh, because uh, unlike a lot of, I mean, this is a case which we see a lot with electronic waste when uh, waste management uh, are not handled usually in the country where most of the users tend to be. So trying to think about the international regime around uh, this needs to be fast track. Uh, last thing is, of course, um, this is with uh, consumer compliance and enforcement mechanism, whether it's in the form of incentivizing users or whether it's a form of uh, strict enforcement at, on, at the producer's level. That's something to about. Lastly, of course, encourage a lot of startups. Um, definitely a lot of startups are emerging both in India as well as abroad, uh, where they do see the value of it. And this is looking into the whole material uh, supply chain side of things more than anything. But, but the fact that there are startups in this ecosystem also means that there is a, a, bi- a big economic proposition around the whole reuse as well as recycling aspects of battery. And, and Jan and his Everphone is a, is a testament to the fact that there is economic case for, for, for a circular economy. I mean, yeah, so many different uh, touch points, and then as a result, so many different uh, possible opportunities. Jan, uh, back to you for a second. H- how do you deal with your own ESG sustainability agenda at Everphone, and how wh- how do you prioritize, or where do you prioritize? Yeah, so first of all, um, obviously, we are in a way lucky or uh, we call it green by design um, so that obviously the core of our business we don't have to transform you know many i think many companies right now are facing the challenge that they have to transform their traditional let's call it non green or, or a, a brown business into a green business and they change things we Obviously, being a startup, uh, um, well, can enough to start out already with a circular business model, model. So we don't have to actually change our company. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to work together with suppliers, with uh, um, uh, other parts um, of the industry to make it even more efficient or make it even more resource saving. So that means, for instance, the big problems we see right now that we cannot extend the lifetime of a smartphone for 10 or 20 years is two things. First of all, and Jack uh, told us about this, batteries right now don't last forever. So one of the things we are pushing for is that in smartphones, um, the suppliers make it easier to replace batteries. It could even go a step further that we really modularize um, the smartphones that you can exchange not only the battery, but the camera module and stuff like that. So that in the end, we basically can really take a smartphone and over the years, upgraded without completely replacing it. So that's one one of the things we're pushing for to basically also help the entire industry to become greener. The second problem, which is actually for us even bigger, um, is software updates. So 
especially in a business context, we can only use a phone as long as the software is being supported and the critical uh, um, software updates are being done on a security side. So one of the big things we're, we're, we're trying to discuss with the producers is that the software updates, it used to be really only two, three years. Now we're already at like four to five years, but we're hoping that they will continuously support older versions of their OS and make them safe to use also in a business context, because otherwise we're forced to, after a while, take back those phones and then sell them on the secondary market to individuals who can still use it, uh, basically when business can't do it. So these are the two areas we're trying to work um, together with with um, other companies, suppliers um, in the space, refurbishing, the refurbishing industry is really getting larger and larger uh, um, that we can use and reuse and reduce um, uh, uh, smartphones. So that that is one thing we're pushing externally. Internally, of course, we're trying we're trying to be as green as possible. I think that we're doing the same thing every other company is doing. So we're looking at all the big um, aspects of Everphone. We're trying to limit travel, especially by air. Uh, we're trying to also uh, digitize um, everything we have. For instance, our heating uh, system, we're trying to automatically uh, uh, turn that up and down so it uh, isn't done manually. So all these things, I think in that case, we are a normal company like every other uh, company, and we're trying everything we can uh, uh, to be internally as green as possible. And what we also do is... We truly calculate the cost of production of smartphones. We check what the suppliers are already doing. And then we compensate every single smartphone that has not been fully compensated. Um, and I think that's a very important thing because then we just roll that over to our price. Because then in the end, we, we make it equal. So there are obviously some suppliers which are greener than others. We look at that. We offset the CO2 uh, uh, gap. We see that the supplier hasn't done. Increase our usage prices so rental prices if you want it this way and therefore make it a fair and level uh, playing field for everyone um, so that they get pushed to the same green level basically as the greenest of the suppliers um, and that's how yeah as mentioned in the beginning we're lucky that it's built into our business model and that it's in our very own interest to use the devices as long as possible and i think that's 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 why it's kind of easy for us um, uh, to go uh, down the ESG path. That's great. That's uh, clearly clearly a lot to do and a lot of uh, different priorities. Um, Andreas, where do you see the opportunities with companies like Everphone? Well, I think, you know, from our perspective, um, the, uh, the experience with Jan and the team obviously – has, lot, has led to a lot of discussion also here internally um, in terms of, you know, what else should we be focused on it along those lines? And, you know, whilst it's easier in certain kind of pockets in industry to, let's say, make an impact, right, from a financial perspective, let's call the, you know, infrastructure and energy space, right, from, from a sustainability perspective, uh, uh, given where, where and how does industry uh, and those sectors operate, it's just you know, much easier, like, I think, from a bank's perspective to kind of make an impact, educate and, 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 and kind of promote this whole topic of, of, of ESG and kind of help them change their profile during the course of transition. Uh, circular economy to me is, is, is fascinating, right? And, and, uh, and ever since we worked with Jan, 
you know, I've been exploring this uh, in the context of other, let's say, as a service businesses, right? Both, both in a B2B and B2C context. And it's a fascinating development, which I think will, you know, come with a, a generation shift also. I mean, it, it obviously it doesn't stop with mobile phones and tablets, right? I mean, the cars, the bikes, the e-bikes, right? Obviously, big battery uh, um, uh, um, topic around this as well. The e-bikes that you know, there's companies emerging that that are supplying uh, all those delivery services, be it in food, in the medical space, etc., with uh, with bikes, right? Because uh, those companies they want to focus on their core business and they want someone else to take care of the hardware. So there's business models emerging around that, also in the as a service space. Big, big implication on 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 the battery market as well but then beyond that right there's consumer electronics there's office equipment right there's 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 dozens of business models that are either emerging because they're being disruptive uh, around the goods as a service space or that are intrinsically emerging where companies have to change the way they do business to kind of gradually divert or migrate more into a, as a service model uh, as well. And banks can, can play a big role there, but it doesn't stop with, with goods as a service space, right? There's, there is, you know, there's a, there's a ton of companies and business model emerging in the ad tech space and insured tech, fintech, as we know, meditech, et cetera. And uh, what I've realized working with Jan and the team is that, and I made this point earlier, it's a people's business, right? Uh, ever since we successfully closed this financing, there was at least a dozen of kind of incoming requests where, you know, people heard about it. Jan spoke to people about uh, the services and the products that we provided and, you know, where we got incoming requests from other potential clients uh, in terms of how we can help them uh, from a capital perspective. And I, I, I found that fascinating because uh, the space is, uh, is such a vibrant microcosm where, like, uh, most people know each other and or are co-invested in, in, in their companies and, and clearly you know, look a lot uh, into the market and try to identify the people and the teams who've done it before, right? And and that's kind of what matters, which is obvious, right? Because that's one of the key successes of every founder, right? Get get the right people together uh, because you can't do it by yourself. And so from that perspective, uh, when you look at how Deutsche Bank uh, came into existence more than 150 years ago, right? We, we're a corporate bank, right? We're not a retail bank. We're a corporate bank and, 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 and the the, the the most important thing I think probably that Deutsche Bank did from the very beginning is bank accompanied you know Germany Inc in their global expansion right that 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 was the purpose of why Deutsche Bank founded more than 150 years ago and I think there is an opportunity now uh, to actually do this again right because the bank has come to realize that uh, companies like Everphone are the clients of tomorrow right and and we're really set up to uh, basically provide our services to those young companies because. We are the way the banks work. We're not one-stop solutions, right? We're basically offering a whole product suite that, depending on where the life cycle of the company is, um, we can be uh, supportive, right? Whether that's the capital solution at the very beginning, kind of the accounts running, FX topics somewhere in between, and then probably at the end of the day, potentially an IPO, which is the dream of every founder. You know, we're there to provide all, all those those services and, and, and we have to be uh, focused and appreciative uh, of the fact that, that we're very much uh, value adding, right, in this whole, uh, let's say, equation. And we're also set up and that's something that we have to work on as a bank where, you know, increasingly also recalibrating kind of our model to basically ensure, right, that we can continue to follow the journey 
uh, of the startups with various risk buckets that we've established in the bank, right? These days we can do venture debt, you know, we can do private debt, right? And depending on where the company is in the life cycle, there's various products that, that should be a natural fit um, to support them in, in their growth. And if there's one thing, and, and, and there's some, certainly something that, that we need to continue to improve that, that I've learned from, from, from Jan is, you know, he's successful because he's fully focused on providing the best in class service. And it's a lot about service, right? And, and we have great products, and, but we need to continue to also um, improve on our way in terms of how we provide those services. And that's something that's clearly more difficult for us as a 150-year-old uh, bank with uh, you know, a, a giant structure and a, a complex setup than it is for a startup. I get that. But we need to pick up on this challenge and we need to continue to also uh, increasingly work in the service-oriented way because this is what those clients expect from us. That's what they're used to. That's how they set up their businesses and they serve their clients. And they expect that from everyone that they work uh, with them, in, including and particularly also the banks that not, don't necessarily have you know, the reputation of being the most agile places uh, in the world. Great. Thanks, Andreas. Um, I think before we, we finish it off, there's one topic um, that I want to touch on, and that's uh, energy security. Uh, I think it's a very topical issue now, obviously, in, in Europe. Um, Jan, I would like you to just walk us through, um, from your perspective, why circular economy is so important when we think about energy security um, and specifically renewable energy security. Um, if you can touch on that, I know it's a massive um, topic, uh, but maybe just linking it back to um, to renewable and uh, and metals and mining. Thanks, Claire. Um, yeah, I can. It's, it's, as you said, it's, it's, a, it's a giant topic to unpack, but I'll try and keep it some structure and context. The shortest context, of course, is I mean, you guys are in, in, in the financial sector. You would have known how the commodity price swing has happened. Uh, over the last uh, few months, especially when it comes to metals and minerals like nickel and cobalt and lithium, certainly. Um, I was reading a Financial Times article uh, today morning, I think a few hours back, about if you don't secure your lithium supply chain, your electric vehicles' ambitions are going to go for a toss, and the supply is universal. Now, this is where the whole linkage between uh, energy security and the circular economy starts emerging, is that when it comes to especially new novel metals and minerals like lithium, cobalt, manganese, nickel, which are going to be extremely needed uh, to secure the clean energy transition, especially when it comes to batteries being the uh, very core technology, both from transportation as well as green energy storage site, you understand that these metals and minerals are going to become critical to how you, uh, you know, uh, go about your day-to-day -day life. How to how do you, how you light your bulbs at, at night? And this is where the importance of these metals and minerals to supply energy security uh, starts coming in. Uh, it's not too different uh, from the dependence on oil and natural gas, of course, but. The difference, of course, is that the impact is not on your operating cost of your asset, but your capital cost of your assets. Uh, that's that's a, a major difference between this uh, risk that we have now compared to the the paradigm in the oil-dominated era when when a slight spike in oil 
would mean uh, your running cost of your gas uh, uh, goes up or goes down. So that's the first thing to establish. Now, where circular economy starts playing in, of course, is first of all, if you reduce your demand, you inherently potentially reduce the upstream pressure to produce more and more metals and minerals upstream uh, and your need for it. Second part is if you reuse it, the impact is the same. The third part is, of course, recyclability. And I've hinted this in terms of the metal and mineral recovery. Uh, in India, uh, at least among the policy circle, we don't call it recycling for these metals and minerals. We call it urban mining. Essentially, the concept is that it is a resource that you're mining in the cities so, uh, within the uh, less, uh, you don't associate areas where you don't associate with mining. So if you treat it, if you shift the mine and if you treat a lot of these electronic waste as resource uh, over um, uh, this thing, over wastage, you're, 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 you turn that uh, uh, mental switch and you realize that this is a resource which allows you to decrease dependence on a lot of these certain mineral and, uh, and metals that you otherwise will have to import, uh, which all has your price risk as well as supply security risk. The last point, of course, uh, less directly to do with energy security, but more to do with the uh, environmental and social uh, side of this mining is inevitably, of course, mining and, and, and is, no, is, is going to be necessary. More and more of it, whether you like it or not, because recycling can only replace a certain part of that, uh, uh, you know, uh, of, of that value chain. You can't percent uh, circular economy as such. There will be wastage both process as well as operations uh, based. Uh, but how do you keep those mining uh, processes uh, you know, from an environment and social perspective secure? Uh, reason being, I think a lot of them, this new, especially these new metals and minerals are very highly concentrated in where they are. Uh, and it has energy security implications uh, associated with it. Uh, cobalt, for example, is primarily in DRC, 51% of the resource. Uh, your lithium is primarily in Chile, some in Argentina, almost 60, 70% of the resources. In that environment, of course, there is big energy security uh, risk to securing uh, those supply. Uh, uh, and so you need to have upstream ownership, you know, ownership of processing and mining uh, uh, as well. But you also need to recognize that a lot of these upstream countries, especially when it comes to DRC, it's not particularly well known for um, uh, good uh, human rights record or environmental uh, safety record. Uh, so trying to make sure that there are international rules and regulations, which allows for a certain minimum standard of those will, be, will become more and more important. The last point of course, is that because of this concentration of mineral and metal, uh, you don't want to repeat off. You don't want to create another, uh, you know, uh, case of uh, resource uh, disease. Resource first, especially in these countries which have those disproportionate share of uh, resources. And we know we have you have we have seen it in the oil and gas uh, history play out, like how how much it can impact the development trajectory of countries. You also have good examples, especially in Europe, where the Norwegians. Scandinavian countries have managed their oil resources very effectively and very well for national development. So there, uh, I'm just <laughs> giving you, I know, I know uh, I unpacked a lot and there are more questions after this than there should, there are answers, but hopefully it gives you a flavor of uh, the energy security implication of this clean energy transition journey we're embarking on.
Thank you, and I, I think I encourage you know everyone listening to this podcast to, to follow up and, and read the uh, the report um, on RMI um, that uh, that you co-authored. Um, so thank you. I think just to wrap it up, a lot was covered today, um, but if I could just summarize sort of three opportunities to support the circular economy that we heard today. One, setting up ecosystems to facilitate the reuse, repair, and recycling, and, and I love the term urban mining, um, uh, to support that. Um, two, changes in business model focusing on servicing um, rather than ownership of products. And three, um, product design really going at the very heart um, of how we think about designing our products uh, for sustainability. So thank you to all three of our speakers for joining us today. Um, and with that, uh, we'll close it off. Thank you.